The views and opinions expressed by the guests of the Inspira podcast do not necessarily represent the official policy or position of any agency of the United States government or any organization, public or private. Welcome to the Inspira podcast, hosted by your girl, me, Erica Mueller-Chen. I'm an international development specialist with over a decade of experience leveraging the amazing power of sport to promote peace and positive social impact. My career has allowed me to live in Europe, Southern Africa, and Latin America. In 2022, I accepted an offer for my dream job in sports diplomacy. And I also became an employee family member to a U.S. diplomat, a.k.a. an EFM. This podcast is all about inspiration and career advice. Each episode, I'll interview an inspirational global changemaker working in sport for development, social impact, or the diplomatic service. This series is perfect if you have interest in breaking into one of these sectors or you've already landed that dream role and are keen to learn from thought leaders. Enjoy today's episode and stay inspired. The situation right now is that most of the knowledge is flowing from the global north, which is kind of ironic because Sport for Development was developed, created on the African continent in a way. And then now you have this this weird power dynamic um, so I really think it's a challenge to always make sure, because, and this is exactly why this participatory approach is very important, that you're ensuring, you know, that this knowledge is really coming from those who are receiving or participating in the programming. Welcome, friends. Today, we are here with special guest, Mariam Ibrahim. Mariam is a former professional football player who represented the Egyptian national women's football team. She's currently based in Germany, working on the Sport for Development in Africa team at GIZ. She also brings experience from the Egyptian Ministry of Youth and Sports, as well as a joint master's degree in international relations from Free University of Berlin, Humboldt University, and University of Potsdam. Mariam believes in the power of sport in contributing to sustainable development and that the creation of safe spaces is the foundation for promoting female participation in sport. Her mission is to bridge the gap between theory and practice while supporting and amplifying the voices of local practitioners. Welcome, Miriam. How are you and where are you calling us from today? Hi, Arka. Thank you for the lovely introduction. It's nice to see you again, even if it's just virtually. Um, I'm calling today actually uh, it's um, this is being recorded in December so it's uh, it's back to the roots for me visiting family getting some sunshine in December <laughs> um, so yeah that's where I'm uh, joining you from today mm. how are you <laughs> yeah I am good so while we're recording this you know the World Cup just finished so a lot of feelings about that has that impacted the vibe in Cairo at all Exciting times for this part of the world, especially, I think, with the Moroccans really representing. Um, yeah, I think that was a really nice surprise for all of us. Um, I think I expected them to do well. This was phenomenal. Uh, so let's, uh, fingers crossed, like, that they hope keep, uh, that they keep on keeping on and we see more, more of uh, our teams doing better. Yeah, that was incredible. I was certainly 
rooting for them, as was a lot of the world. So really interesting stories coming out of this. But this mm -hmm. isn't about the World Cup. Uh, there's plenty of podcasts for that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, one thing uh, I like to do, Miriam, before we get into the interview, because I've called this podcast Inspira, I like to start with a little bit of inspiration and why the guest inspires me today. So Miriam, I really, really admire how you've transitioned from a professional athlete to now the positive power of sport and social change. And particularly, I understand your commitments are, are several things, but especially female participation in sport, as well as advocating for and deepening the impact within the MENA region, which we'll talk about today. So really thrilled to have your perspective on the show today and to have the excuse to ask you a lot of questions. <laughs> thank you, thank you for having me. I'm really excited for this. I think it's gonna be cool. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, let's jump into it. For starters, Miriam, can you share a bit of an overview of your sports career journey, including any of those experiences as a pro football player? Yeah, of course. Um, I actually started out um, as a tennis player. Um, I used to always play football with my friends, uh, my guy friends, uh, <laughs> but like it was never really a thing for girls to play football. So it was just something I enjoyed doing as a hobby. I used to play tennis, which is an individual sport. And then a coach saw me play with my friends. And then he's like, hey, you want to come practice with me? And I was like, OK, cool. And then I go. And then, of course, I'm practicing with a guy's team. Um, and then that's that's what I kept doing. Eventually, the, the women's league started developing here in Egypt. And then, you know, I started practicing with other women. Um, and that's how kind of my story developed. I never really had or even understood that this would be possible for me to for a woman to be a professional football player. Um, so that was quite the journey, um, I think. So I played like professional football here in Egypt, played in the league, played, represented the national team. And then I also studied in the U.S., played for the university there which was also a lot of fun. Um, I think it's really a change of mindset playing and going moving from an individual sport to a team sport. Um, it's very different. Um, I think it was a switch for me because I mean, at the end of the day, there are, are other people on the team. You're held responsible. You hold other people responsible. Um, so yeah, I'm glad it worked out in the end. Um, I'm no longer an active player. Um, I'm really lucky to still be able be, to be involved in the, in the sector somehow. Um, I think sport for development is has a lot of potential. I can only advocate for it. And uh, yeah, it's it's been a lot of fun ever since. And if you could go back in time, do you like that you had the team sport and the individual sport and then ended up excelling in the team sport? I think it really depends on your personality. Um, I think I just enjoy being able to celebrate together as a team um, in victory and defeat. I mean, you don't you can celebrate many things. Um, I think being part of a team is really also being part of a community, which is also part of sport for development. You know, you, you learn together, you grow together, you face challenges together. Um, so I think for me, it, it was, uh, yeah, it made it, it was more fun. Of course, they both have cool things to offer. But for me, it was more fun to be part of a team. Spoken like a true sport for development enthusiast. Very well done, Miriam. And it's okay if people agree. You know, I personally, I like being individual, but yeah, ended up in a team sport as well with softball. 
Tell me more about your upbringing in Egypt and education in Germany. And you also mentioned education in the U.S., kind of those different forces coming together. How did that feel for you? And what did you learn from those experiences or locations or cultures? Yeah, I think I'm very lucky to have the background and to have received the education that I've received, thanks to my parents. (laughs) Um, so yeah, I went to a German high school or German school here in Cairo, um, also got the German degree, um, because I mean, growing up, we used English and Arabic at home. Um, so my parents were like, okay, so you go to a German school or a French school, uh, which I mean, I'm again, thankful for them uh, for that decision. Cause I speak three languages now. Um, so yeah, a German school, very intense. Um, I think or I credit the German school for my critical thinking. I think it did me it did me well. Um, and then I went to the U.S. because I wanted to keep playing football. Um, and I think if you're if you're wanting to do sports, um, I mean college sports is made sense to me at least back then. Um, I think that was interesting to me because then I also had the opportunity to study both political science and psychology. Um, double majoring is not as easy in Germany as it is in the U.S. Um, so that was also part of the decision. Um, so that was also very cool. I decided to go, go to a smaller university uh, because I really wanted that community feeling. Um, also a good decision, I think. Um, and then I decided to go back to the to the German roots in a way and to get my master's in Germany um, to really get them the, I did my master's in international relations. Um, so for me, I was like, okay, I studied political science in the U.S. I do international relations in Germany to see what's taught there, learn more, get a different perspective. Um, it was good. The program offers a lot because it's a joint degree program between probably the three biggest universities in Germany. Uh, so course selection was huge. The professors are amazing across the board. You could pretty much go anywhere uh, to study abroad because we had to study abroad as part of the requirement. So I went to DC, also got to go to a very cool school there, the George Washington University. So I think I have a very rich and diverse educational background, which um, I would claim also helped shape who I am today. I think that was very cool to learn the different cultures, meet people from everywhere, also learn about the different educational systems because they're very different. Um, So yeah, all in all, I think I would do it again. You've certainly had colorful experiences and diverse locations and George Washington is among some of my old stomping grounds when I lived in DC for five years. I'm curious if you had any specific career interests at that time Yeah, um, I think growing up, I kind of always had the goal or the expectation, I'm not really sure what the right word for it is here, um, that I would become a diplomat. And that was just kind of my thing. Like I knew, I think when I was 12, maybe I had already decided that this is what I was going to do, even though like no one in my family has that like is in that line of business or is in that sector per se. Um, And then slowly as I got older, as I learned more about political science, I was like, okay, maybe I would like to take more the critical side of things. It uh, doesn't mean that the diplomacy is not critical. It's just, you know, more of the think tank, more of the, you know, analyzing. Um, and then I was like, okay, let's do the master's in international relations and, you know, give myself some more time to think about it. 
And then in Berlin, oddly enough, um, I was studying and then I found this internship posting at Street Football World that is now called Klang Goal. Um, and then I wasn't really sure what the organization was. Um, and I remember even the description on the website was very basic of like, you know, working on integrating communities, something with sport. I was like, okay, cool. Very interesting. I'll apply. And then it was, you know, I, I applied not really expecting anything. And then I walk in and then I don't know if you've been through their office before you walk in and it's literally the ground is turf. There are football jerseys hanging everywhere. I was like, okay, wow, this is very cool. And then I sit for the interview and then, you know, everything happens super quickly. You know, a couple of days later, you're like, okay, here you got the, the role. And then timing was perfect because they had, they have over 130 at the time, 130 network members. Uh, they were all coming together to Berlin. Uh, they come together twice, uh, once every two years. So I got to meet everyone. And then that's how I kind of discovered the fields as I don't know, I, as weirdly as this sounds, I didn't really know it existed before. And then Street Football World was kind of my uh, my introduction to the field. And then I've been in it ever since. That's really, really cool. And I think I saw some Common Goal commercials during the World Cup, actually, which is really good for the sector, uh, for people who like realize that there is a sector. Tell me a little bit more about your understanding of sport for development and peace and maybe what it means to you now. Yeah, I think keep it simple is, is a good way to start defining this term because <laughs> you can you can really get very technical. I think to me, I mean, think about your own experience. Sport connects everyone. You just, regardless of what sport you're doing, if it's a ball sport, if it's cross country, if it's anything, you don't even need to speak the same language, right? So I think to me, sport is just this connecting factor or, or language that we all ha have in common. So like it has such great power. So like imagine structuring this a bit and then actually coming up with manuals, with handbooks, with approaches to use this power of sport to teach people something or to support them in developing their skills. So this is the very simple way of explaining what the sector does or what we try to do. Um, and I find that fascinating because it's also, because I work for a regional project, so I have the advantage of being able to see how one approach is implemented in such diverse ways, depending on the context and on the country. You just have you know, a framework, you have a very simple handbook and then that it's, it's adapted to each country and each context. And it's just very cool to see. So I think for me, that's sport for development. Um, what it also does is really creating these safe spaces. I think for me, this is really the make it or break it. Because I mean, we all talk about, you know, increasing female participation, including uh, female in sport, females in sport. All of this stuff is only possible if you have spaces where all participants feel safe. And then it doesn't only ensure that they come, it ensures, it ensures that they stay in sport, right? Because I mean, if you feel comfortable, if you have a good experience, if you enjoy it, if you learn something, then you come back. And that's what we're trying to do. Quick break here to highlight that there are currently five Inspira podcast episodes available for your listening pleasure. Episode one provides my background and motivation for starting the podcast. Episode two is with Miriam from Egypt, a former pro footballer who broke into the sector through an internship. Episode 3 is with Stephen from Jamaica, who founded a cheerleading organization that prevents violence and empowers the members of the LGBTQ population. Episode 4 is with Chanel from the USA. She's the executive director of the DC United Foundation, the major league soccer team in the US's capital city. 
Episode 5 is with Ben from South Africa, and we talk about the evolution of the sport for development and peace sector. New Inspira podcast episodes will be released every Tuesday starting on January 31st. If you like what you hear, please give Inspira five stars on your chosen podcast platform and write a kind review. That would really make my day. Thanks, and back to the show. How do you think your perspective being a quote former athlete, because we're all still athletes, but quote former (laughs) professional athlete, does that enter your mind or your work ever? Yes, 100%. I think looking back, especially when I used to play with the guys, I mean, something as simple as they change on the field. (laughs) And then I grew up in Egypt. So like also... I mean, even something as simple as, you know, changing your shirt, even if you're wearing a sports bra, it's not really, it's just not a thing here. So like, I think here, something's, this is just pulling from my very basic experience of like, you need locker rooms, something as simple as that. Also like looking at the more professional side of things that, which also trickles down into the sports for development sector oftentimes is funding. I mean, the guys had fancy kits, they had the cool things, they had the sponsors. We had to wash our own kits. So like it's it's really you know it's it's a lot. So when you sit when you reflect, you, like the list goes on. Um, so I think obviously I like we all have different experiences and backgrounds, but I feel like these experiences are always in the back of my mind. Involving current or former elite athletes in sport for development has so much potential, not only when thinking about the potential impact or inspiration it can be for communities, but also what it can do for the athlete. Oftentimes when someone's sports performance career ends, they may not be able to keep sport in their life in a meaningful way. Mm -hmm. So sport for dev could be a really nice opportunity to do this. And Miriam, you mentioned something a minute ago about some of the sport for development work that you've done or seen in terms of projects implemented differently based on the country context. Can you speak more to that? Yeah. So maybe just a quick one on how GIZ works. So how we work as a project. I think what really makes GIZ as an institution very impactful and very good at what we do is across the board, not just our project, is that we have a participatory approach. So like, what does this mean for a project like us, for example, is that we receive money from the BMZ, from the German Ministry for International Economic and International Development, and then, or cooperation. And then we, before launching our activities, before developing our project design, we bring all the actors together. We have something called a steering committee meeting to really create this ownership of all the relevant actors in the country. We discuss our framework, what we envision, what they think is best. We bring everything together and then we create a plan. Um, so this is in a nutshell what it looks like. Um, and then, so what does what does the work then? How does that trickle into the work is we work on the grassroots level um, in country. So like, you know, the basic uh, training of trainers, you know, you train multiplier, we call them multipliers or facilitators um, that then um, train children and youth using the sport for development approach, depending on the context. Sometimes we work in schools, sometimes we work at uh, TVET institutions, which are technical vocation, you know, education and training uh, institutes. Um, so we work with teachers. Um, and then because part of our, mission and vision as GIZ and also as a project, of course, is sustainability. So what we do is we also always have to have a national partner. 
Uh, so one of the ministries, for example, so by embedding the approach sport for development on a ministerial level. So what does that mean? It's, it means that it is part of the ministry's policies. It says, you know, everyone has the right to do sport for development, for example. Then, you know, if it's the Ministry of Education, which is the, uh, the case in Kenya now, um, that all the kids in school are going to receive sport for development in Kenya. So, you know, it got embedded on a national level, regardless of the project, like us, if we're there or not there, this is this is a win that's always going to be there. Um, so that's basically what we do. It's, this is something that we've managed to do in most of our project countries as well. Um, so it's always very cool to see because then, again, I think sustainability, sustainability, especially in the sport for development sector, is always an issue. Um, so when you're able to do that, it's uh, it's really big. For those less familiar with GIZ, is it a sport for development organization or a sport for development one branch of what GIZ does? Yeah, good question. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, we're a development international development agency. Uh, so what we do is we have more than we're present in more than 120 countries worldwide. We do development projects across the board, uh, ranging from you know agricultural development, education, to employment, employability skills. Like really, it's it's a wide palette. Um, and then we're a project based. We're we're project based. So support for development. In GIZ is always based on whether or not we get commissioned by the German government again or not. Um, so we've been running programming, uh, sport for development programming on the African continent since 2014. Um, so yeah, it's been it's been a journey. Um, so yeah, and then we just got commissioned for the next three years. Um, so exciting times ahead for us. We're also going to be moving away from the classic in-country implementation and moving toward more toward. Um, working closer together with the African Union Sport Council, which is the regional body responsible for sport development, be, being professional sport and sport for development on the continent, which is very exciting for us, of course, because then this gives us the opportunity to work together with a Pan-African partner and really amplify our impact. I know you've done a lot in the MENA region as well. I'm curious in terms of that region or just globally, are there any insights you can share from your personal experience of how sport for development looks different or works differently in those regions? Yeah, I think um, it's, it's, it's still, it's still growing. Um, I think compared to other regions, the MENA region, when it comes to sport for development, still needs some more work. Um, I really do believe that sport for development is happening in the MENA region. We just don't know that it's called that. Uh, so I think it's a labeling issue. Um, I hope that after the World Cup, with all the legacy projects coming, maybe, you know, it, it gives it a bit of a push. Um but yeah, um, what's because I mean, if you think about it, the program programs being implemented now are mainly uh, in Palestine and in Jordan, working in refugee contexts. These are probably the go-to examples. Um, I think there's a lot more work being done in different countries, Egypt being one of them. You know, really focusing on, you know, leadership, developing leadership skills, communication skills, especially for women and girls. Um, so I, I really do believe it's a labeling issue. I think. Uh, we're making slow progress, but steady progress. Um, so yeah, let's see where the journey takes us. Mm. The labeling issue, as you called it, I have learned is quite common in lots of different countries. I was mentioning to you before the call, I've been lucky to have interviews with people from different countries for this podcast. And 
over half of them, if not more, in the countries that they're from or that they currently live in, sport for development, I'm using air quotes right now, does not exist under those terms. And that's not just because those countries may not speak English, it's because that term, that concept is is new. And so uh, I appreciate you kind of recognizing that and um, you've explained to me some misconceptions about the MENA region and I think you just dispelled some of them right now saying like, it exists, it just may look or be called something different. Yeah, I agree. I also think you're seeing more of the professional side of the sport really also starting to recognize the social power of the sport. So I think it's also slowly, they're going to start pushing it more. And then I think maybe within the next five years, we, uh, we, when we're reflecting on this, uh, on this uh, talk, maybe we see, ah, see, this is how far we've come sit. Yeah, hopefully I'm quick enough with my publishing that like the sector <laughs> hasn't fully transformed in a few months and people are listening like, Erica, what, what were you talking about? Yeah. Miriam, I, I do ask people to reflect about any challenges that maybe they've experienced either while working in sport for development or pursuing a career in sport for development. Does anything come to mind that you'd be comfortable sharing? I think definitely if you're pursuing a career in sport for development, the biggest thing would be that it most, I mean, obviously not all of it, but most of the work is project based. Um, so I think you need to be someone who's okay with not being 100% sure that you're still going to have this job in three years, maybe. Um, I think it's also, I mean, it is growing, but I still believe the field is fairly small, um, which is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just, I mean, you know everyone very quickly, but then, of course, because it's project-based work, if the project has ended and now you would still like to stay in the field, your options, I think, you're a bit restricted. So that's an issue. And other than that, I think if you look at it from like, you know, a programming side, at the end of the day, it is a resource issue. So I think you need more finances to be flowing into the field. Again, I, I do see that this is changing. Um, I think, you know, you have bigger actors um, really pushing more money in the field, recognizing the power of sport. The UN General Assembly just re released a draft resolution three weeks ago, recognizing the power of sport in achieving or contributing to the sustainable development goals. So, you know, I think it's changing, um, but it's definitely, I think it's less so for someone who would like the certainty of knowing where they would be in the next five years. How have you handled that? And more specifically, if I can ask, how have you been able to secure various paid roles in the sector? Do you have any secrets that you can share with us? I honestly think I've been very lucky. That's not a very helpful answer. I apologize. But I think, again, because the field is so small and people are genuinely, or this has been my experience so far, people are always open to help. So I've come across very good people, maybe the right people, I don't know, to kind of, you know, take my hand, support me and really guide me through it. I think you just need to be open to asking questions, reaching out to people you don't necessarily know. Um, as I mentioned, usually people are super nice. So yeah, I think you just need to take the risk. Uh, there isn't really a formula to success, I think, it has been my, uh, or would be my my piece of advice there. 
recognize from your profile, from your CV, of course, you mentioned Street Football World, now known as Common Goal. I know you also have experience with Discover Football, the Ministry of Youth and Sports of Egypt, Women Win, GIZ, and a few others. Check out Marion's LinkedIn. What are some insights you can share from those different experiences about how to create or implement an effective sport for development initiative? Are there any really key ingredients? Yeah, it's a very good question because I'm really thankful. I, I didn't plan it like that. Again, I think I just got very lucky that these organizations, for those who don't know, are completely different because you have GIZ being, you know, an international development organization. The ministry is on a national level. Discover Football is very grassroots. Common Goal is a global NGO. So we really, you know, I think I got, I'm very thankful that I've, I've been able to work with these different organizational structures um, because they also, because they have different definitions of success, right? Because depending on like, you know, who you report to, if I can put it like that, it's very different. Um, I think what I've, what I feel like has always worked is really mobilizing the community like making sure that you're including those you're trying to support because then I mean at the end of the day how do you measure success if they feel like they've been successful then that's probably when you were successful um so I think really the participatory approach creating this ownership is is the most important thing because I, and then you know you have them you have the programming keep going even when you're not there because they believe in it as well it sounds so simple, but as you and I oh, probably <laughs> no, it's not. It's not. It's... It also takes it takes time, which is an issue because people want impact yesterday. Yeah, I agree with you completely. And and those are some things from your biography that I mentioned that emphasis you have on local practitioner voices, which I think you just hinted at, and this greater challenge in the sector around bridging the gap between theory and practice. Are there any other interests in the sector or kind of priorities that you have personally moving forward? Yeah, I think maybe just, uh, I think they, they're somewhat linked together. The challenges and opportunities is... I mean, I wouldn't say the problem. The, the situation right now is that most of the knowledge is flowing from the global north, which is kind of ironic because Sport for Development was developed, created on the African continent in a way. And then now you have this, this weird power dynamic. So I really think it's a challenge to always make sure, and this is exactly why this participatory approach is very important, that you're ensuring, you know, that this knowledge is really coming from those who are receiving or participating in the programming. I really hope that slowly the sector is, you know, being more inclusive uh, because it's not always about the knowledge not being there. I think it's a resource issue. So how are you including people that are not necessarily sitting in Europe and the US, but more, you know, you're expanding your range and your palette. Um, and then once this starts happening in a more structured manner, I think the we're gonna start recognizing how diverse the field really is. Um, and this is where I'm hoping things develop. Uh, I mean, the Vina region, like we, we mentioned earlier, I hope that sport for development starts gaining more traction. And then just generally, I feel like, you know, you start seeing more knowledge coming uh, from countries that are not necessarily European uh, or American, which they're not bad. It's just, you know, diversity is always good. Yeah, 
Yeah, I agree completely. And as you were talking, I was just thinking about how you and I are from different parts of the world, but I have similar opinions or observations. That's one of the main motivations I have for creating this podcast, which is to provide a platform for voices and stories from around the world, especially from leaders in the global south. I really hope to contribute to also making existing resources more obvious and available for folks, regardless of their location. I have seen that so many Sport for Development and Peace global platforms out there aim to represent the sector as a whole, but they do end up leaving certain voices out. Now that we know more about our guest's career journey, the rest of our conversation will allow us to have some fun and get to know our guest on a personal level through some rapid fire questions. We'll then start to wrap up with pointed questions focused on advice and how our listeners can transform interest into action. Enjoy the rest of the conversation. What is your favorite food? Ooh, my favorite food, uh, grape leaves or vine leaves, depending on where you come from. Uh, Yeah. Would you be able to teach us something about Egyptian culture that maybe a lot of people don't know? Uh, That's a difficult one. I think our culture is very heavily influenced by pop culture. So like movies, (laughs) songs, theories, etc. You're going to find a lot of people making jokes and using quotes from TV series and movies as references. Uh, So yeah, I think you need to always stay stay up to date or then you're (laughs) lost. Do you have a favorite sports memory? Actually, yeah, I do. When we were playing, I was playing with my team, Maidi, in the Egyptian um, league. And then we were playing against this like top team. Uh, we were still pretty new. They were better established. They had more money. Um, and then it was such a big deal for us. You know, the, the director of the club was there. The whole board was there. Everyone was sitting watching. Um, and I think even the head of the association was also sitting there watching. And then, you know, 20 minutes in, uh, we scored the first goal or like I scored the first goal. And then we just celebrated as if we won the World Cup, I think. <laughs> uh, we ended up losing the game 3-1, which was fine because we scored and never, no one expected us to score. <laughs> but I think, yeah, I think this just goes back to, you know, being a team sport, being able to mm. celebrate the little things. Because, I mean, at the end of the day for us, it was it was a big step. We were still pretty new in the league. Uh, so we were more than content with, with it. <laughs> Did you have a jersey number that you always really wanted to wear? Uh, I was always uh, number 23. Uh, I think uh, Bendit like, Beck- it like Beckham really influenced my life. <laughs> um, yeah, but then I've had different jerseys. I've, I switched between nine and six then uh, for the rest of my career. Mm-hmm. Do you have a guilty pleasure? A guilty pleasure? I can eat ice cream at any point of the day, 100%. I, yeah, breakfast, lunch, and or dinner. Uh, Is there a specific good. flavor? Coffee, 100%. Yeah, coffee, ice cream? Well, I've never had that, but I don't drink coffee, so it might be a stress oh, for me. Uh, what do you do? How do you not drink coffee? Oh, my God. It's all sheer willpower. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
wow, okay. Please let me know when you're in Frankfurt. Yeah, uh, I have wait. a coffee station in my apartment. We're gonna, we're gonna, yeah, I'm gonna give you the full experience. I've only had coffee twice in my life and it was actually like a few years ago when I was in Spain for grad school because you know it became kind of like a bit like Erica's never had coffee. But yeah, my family, they're tea drinkers and uh, yeah, I never really got used to the smell of it. So, but but I'll dabble if it means I can be friends with you and some other cool people. Oh, we can be friends know. with or without the coffee, like no worries. I mean, maybe it's like that for you with tea, you know, waking up, just taking this half hour in the morning, you know, sitting with your glass looking out the window. So before everything starts getting crazy, um, that's, that's my routine, at least. Miriam, mm -hmm. what advice would you give folks interested in breaking into the sport for development and peace sector? Um, I think get on LinkedIn. Uh, look for people who seem interesting to you um, and just message them. Um, I think that's, that's, as I mentioned earlier, that's always worked for me. The field is very small um so before you know it you'll be connected to like everyone or a lot of people in the field uh so yeah just put yourself out there i think mm -hmm. that has worked for me in my career and what i would do sometimes whether i was going to event conferences or not i would try to find like the speaker list and i would just look them up, always send them a message, even if I really didn't know anything about sport for development, give them a compliment, ask if they would be up for a 15 minute phone call, Zoom call. And my success rate was pretty high. I mean, you're always going to have people that ignore you or don't see the message or don't have time, but just try. And if you compliment people and say why you're reaching out, it really goes a long way. And then if you follow up with them, that goes an even longer way. And uh, for anyone listening or interested in the podcast, just check out the people I'm interviewing. I think that's a really straightforward way of starting because I think that all of these people are really amazing. So have a look at their profiles and, and reach out. Yeah, I agree. I agree 100%. What skills do you think are helpful for folks who are trying to pursue opportunities in the sector, what do you think might make them marketable or attractive to hiring managers? Um, I think speaking more than one language is definitely a plus. Uh, that's very helpful, um, I think, but very foundational skills are you need to be very open. Uh, you need to be able to listen. You need to be not necessarily a fast learner, but a learner in general. Um, the field is very dynamic. Um, I think it's good if you're open, if you're really eager to learn. Um, you're pretty much always on the move, uh, I think. So that's also something that you need to be aware of. Um, and then with the project-based work, uh, I think you need to be okay with not knowing sometimes. What resources might you recommend that folks look up after this conversation? Um, I think we have our website. Um, I don't know if we can link it, Erica. Yes, yeah, we can link it. Show notes. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have a everything we have published, developed, all the resources, handbooks, manuals, etc., are open access or available on the website. Uh, we also have a webinar series that is available in four languages, if I'm not mistaken, if not more uh, Arabic, French, German, and English. Uh, Spanish as well, so five languages. Um, you can go ahead, check it out. Um, there's a calendar for, for the entire year. The new one is not up yet, but uh, it will be there. Um, it's on diverse topics ranging from like M&E to like what is sport for development. 
Um, and then we also have uh, two open access e-learning courses on what is sport for development and what is safeguarding in sport and sport for development. Uh, I can also share the link with Erica, of course. And just to drive it home, Miriam, on the resources, I would say GIZ is among the top three recommended websites that I would give people that I've used myself. Top three in no particular order being sportanddev.org, jsfd.org, which is research focused, and then GIZ. And, I th and I'll put the website there, but it's, it's literally sportfordevelopment.com. And there's hyphens between sport <laughs> for development. Uh, so yeah, tons of resources. People don't need to feel like they're starting from scratch. Yes. I think this is also an issue we have sometimes. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. I mean, the stuff is there. Don't make your life uh, more difficult than it needs to be. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Miriam, what is one thing you hope listeners remember from this conversation today? Sport for development is great. <laughs> Please help us in advocating for it. We are doing our best. We do great work. And not just we as a GIZ, we as the sector in general. I think that would be, I hope that you take that away uh, today. And uh, I think the other thing would be just reach out and connect uh, to learn more. Do you think that you'll try to stay in the sector? Whew, uh, very good question. Um, hopefully, uh, I think I think my eventual plan would be... Um, at some point coming back to the MENA region and really doing some work in the region um, would be the, the ideal plan for me um, yeah. Yeah. or the ideal dream, I guess. Um, but let's see, you never know. Mm -hmm. How can our audience support you or your work moving forward? Uh, we have an Instagram channel, a YouTube channel. We have all the social media channels. Um, so like we can link them, you can follow us, you can stay in touch. Um, Otherwise, as I mentioned, you know, uh, we sometimes have an issue that we talk amongst ourselves in the sport for development bubble. Uh, so, yeah, I think we're trying to doing our best to grow this bubble and really reach out to other sectors and try to show that sport can be a, or is, in fact, a cross cutting tool for development. Um, so mm. we're going to keep on keeping on. <laughs> My final question, which you gave me permission to ask you to answer in Arabic. Miriam, who or what inspires you? أكثر حاجة مهمة بالنسبة لي إن البلاد اللي إحنا بنشتغل فيها بنشوف إن إزاي المؤسسات بتقدر تعمل حاجات شغل كتير كبير قوي وكتير قوي توصل لبني آدمين كتير قوي بموارد قليلة. فإحنا بنحاول على قد ما نقدر إن إحنا نساعدهم في في شغلهم ونحاول نساعدهم ان هم يوصلوا لناس اكتر وبنحاول كمان ان احنا نوري احنا بنشتغل في قاره افريقيه فبنحاول ان احنا نوري المناطق الثانيه قد ايه قاره قويه وقد ايه ان الرياضه ممكن بجد تغير حياه البني ادمين. So basically what I was saying is it's really inspiring to me especially in our project countries how organizations and how individuals really can achieve so much with, with so little resources. Uh, so we're doing our best to help support them, grow their work, reach more people, um, and then also so show other regions how strong um, the work being done on the African continent is just because we work on the African continent, um, and then how really sport can change lives.
Um, so I hope that you also join us uh, on this journey. Um, and let's see how far we can come together. I couldn't have said it at all, but I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> Thank you, Miriam, for your time today, your insights, and I'm wishing you all the best moving forward. Thank you, Erica, for having me and for this great podcast. It was a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, can't wait to hear all of the other exciting speakers you had on your podcast. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the Inspira podcast with Erica Mueller-Chen. I really hope you enjoyed the episode and found it useful. Be sure to check out the show notes for links and resources. Specifically, my link tree is there with tons of awesome information. Feel inspired to take action today? I've got three action steps you can take right now because you know your girl likes calls to action and the number three. So here goes. Number one, follow the podcast on your chosen podcast platform. Number two, share your feedback with me through the listener survey listed on that link tree. And number three, tell just one friend about this podcast so they can give it a listen too. And do I have any overachievers out there? I've got a bonus action step, which is to consider supporting me and making sure this passion project prospers. So number four, follow the link to buy me a coffee. That would be pretty amazing. Until next time, stay inspired. Thank you.